trade season is officially here, baby. So what? So what if the best center on the market got traded weeks ago? So what about the other teams doing business? So what about Chris Tanev going to the Dallas Stars? You know what it is. It's the center of the universe. It's the place that matters. It's the province with almost half of our population as a country. The Toronto Maple Leafs made a trade. We, boom, trade season is here. Trade season officially kicking off. Ilya Labushkin, the Russian bear, returns. The return of the king. The return of the king. The big, heavy, shot-blocking, nasty, in-the-corners, net-front presence. His own net-front. He's back. He is back. Seriously, okay. There's obviously some hyperbole here. This is gonna be this is gonna be a great day because and this is gonna be a great weekend for Lee fans. Because the team's coming off of a win, even though they look kind of sketchy, uh, basically the second half of that hockey game. But we are in for some great embrace debate when it comes to the Toronto Maple Leafs over the coming, I would say, week. Because we're now a week away. We're a week away from some of you hopefully still sitting down in front of the television. I like to believe that that's still a thing. Sportsnet going to have you covered all day long, as you know. Sportsnet Radio going to have you covered all day long. To me, still a Canadian holiday, the NHL trade deadline. Still to me, especially on a Friday, that's a beautiful, I don't know if they're always on a Friday, but that actually just feels great to me. That feels kind to me. You get a long weekend, you sit down, you post up, you make yourself a Caesar, and you watch the analysts kick around third round picks for depth players you haven't seen before all day long. I cannot wait. I'm serious. I love trade deadline day. I have core memories from NHL trade deadline day, but yeah, the Leafs, the the Leafs have kicked it off. They had Elia Labushkin. People are going to have a big debate about what this team needs to do and how aggressive they should be at the deadline. And now there's going to be another big debate about the goaltenders. And I'll get into that one a little bit later. We got Don LaGreca coming up in a few minutes. So probably won't get into Samsonov versus wool with him. But I got a lot of thoughts. I got a lot of thoughts because th- this one to me is it's a, it's an incredible Rorschach test where some people just look at it and go, well, what do you mean? This is obvious. I did it last night on Leafs talk with McKee. He went, no, it's obvious. It's Joe Wolf. I went, oh, I'm not so sure. Actually, to the point where he ended up backing me into a into a bet that I, I think I could have gotten odds on if I would have taken it to a sports book. Anyways, you got that. You got deadline stuff. But let me start with the deadline stuff before we get Don on. Okay, so again, they, they grab Lubushkin. And is he a perfect player by any means? Absolutely not. Is he as good as Chris Tanev would have been? Absolutely not. Uh, but here's what he does. He kills penalties. And he kills them effectively. He has played more PK minutes this season than anybody on the Toronto Maple Leafs. And if you've noticed, man, the Leafs' top PK unit, their blue line, not exactly phenomenal. Got Jake McCabe back there grinding away with TJ Brody. I'm of the belief that this Leafs team was never going to seriously materially change the blue line in season. The only way that it was going to happen was the way that Elliot Friedman said, basically from what the second month of the season going, yeah, they're shopping their first round pick and they're looking to make trades and add to the blue line. Brad Treeland wants to add to the blue line. 
but he's looking for term. And if you tried to combine the term and fit with the Toronto Maple Leafs, you ended up with a long list of essentially no one. We've gone over the Hannafin stuff, and I don't think that's a done deal in terms of, you know, they're completely out on him. It looks like maybe Boston is the front runner reading the insider tea leaves. But, yeah, there, there just wasn't that player there. There wasn't that guy that I said, okay, well, that makes sense. Package the assets together. There weren't a bunch of right-shot defensemen who have good term and that were on bad teams that people wanted to move. And if there were, the prices would have been just sky high. The Leafs did, in my opinion, sort of the next best thing. They've only got really one big swing. They've got one big swing. If there is somebody that does become available, they could probably package their first, Fraser Minton, and then maybe some other peripheral pieces in order to get a deal done for someone of real value. They don't want to trade Easton Cowan. It's pretty clear. Why would you want to trade the kid that's dominating on the most famous junior team in all of hockey? Why, why would you want to do that right now? It doesn't make any sense, especially when the kid, by all accounts, has the thing that I think is going to be the commodity amongst players moving forward, and, and I mean this in all sports, which is he's going to have the, the heart quotient, the care quotient, the real passion quotient for those of you that are here in Leafland. So it's a limited market. A bunch of buyers are looking at stuff and are, are very interested, but there's not a lot of sellers that are overly compelling. And so I, I just don't mind a trade like this where you shore up some needs, you add a little bit of depth, and you add a player who's familiar with the market and who's okay with the market because, as we know, it's, yeah, it's not for everybody. Anyways, uh, the legend. Uh, one of the greats in this business, Don LaGreca, uh, co-host of the Michael K show. Uh, he's on the line from ESPN radio, the yes network. And of course, uh, he's the host of game misconduct podcast and now fills in as the New York Rangers play by play voice. Hey Don, thanks for making time, man. Oh, listen, it's always a pleasure. Yeah. It's great to have you. So, Hey, what, what's the trade deadline south of the border? Cause like here it's a national holiday and it doesn't matter that all the trades get done beforehand. It's just, it's. It's massive. But for you guys in New York, like how much does this actually register in terms of what you would do on, say, like the K show? Well, well listen, it, it, if the Rangers are involved, we'll do a lot on the K show. Yeah. Uh, Devils and Islanders, maybe not as much unless it's like a real major, major deal. <clears throat> listen, for me as a hockey nut, for the hockey nuts out there, we love it. We're completely mm-hmm. engaged in it. But we've got the Knicks in free fall with their injuries. We've got Mets and Yankees down in spring training. We've got the combine in the NFL. It's amazing. The NFL has like become like a 24 24- seven sport down here uh, in in the states and, and certainly in new york with the jets and the giants so there's a lot of competition but with the rangers the feel is the right deal might be able to get them in conversation for the cup if you remember a couple of years ago one of the reasons they were to make the run to the conference final against tampa was because of the acquisitions of cop and vetrano mm-hmm. you go back to 94 all the moves that were made at the deadline that uh, got them over the top so with the rangers being as active as i think they're going to be uh, I, I think it could be a big day on the 8th. But as you said, maybe some of these deals happen before then. But if not, I think the trade deadline can kind of be a big deal in, in the tri-state area. Yeah, um, I, I still think that you guys next bounce back. I like that team. You get OG. Uh, you know, consummated a trade earlier this year. I know that with him on the floor, you guys were like plus a million. I don't think you guys yeah. lost a possession with OG and Anobi on the floor. But yeah, I am interested in like where the Rangers slot in right now, just considering how they've been red hot. And dominating, they just what have they won? Eleven of their last twelve games. Do you? Yeah. I, I, the Leafs just had their own win streak, right? They just put together seven in a row. And to me, it's like what you try to glean from winning streaks is, hey, what what's going to apply to the playoffs? Is this a winning streak that 
involves a lot of flukiness? Is this a win streak where you just got the good bounces? Um, was there something that you learned about this Rangers team over that stretch that you really feel changed your opinion about that group? Uh, I would think probably more than anything else over that streak. Because we know what Shesterkin can do. So the fact that he had gotten hot, a lot of people were worried because he was playing so poorly in January. But we've seen him hot before. We know the quality goaltender he is. So that didn't surprise me at all. What really surprised me was getting offense from somebody named different than, you know, Kreider, um, Kreider, Trocek, Panarin, and Zibanejad. Like, they, the fact that Lafreniere has played so well, Kako has been able to contribute. They've been getting um, – that, that Cooley line has really done some well. Rempe's become like a cult hero here in New York, what he's been able to do. It's something other than the power play and Zabanajad, Kreider, Trocek, and Panarin. Like, that was way too much with the Rangers. When they started off 18-4-1, it was all power play. It was all those four forwards, and they just couldn't get any real secondary or tertiary scoring, and it was all about the top two lines. Now they're kind of spreading it out a little bit more. The other night, everybody had multiple shots on goal. It felt like there was only a, a one forward that didn't have a shot on goal in the win the other night against Columbus. So they just feel a little bit more well-rounded than they were earlier in the season. And that's what you need to be if you're going to make a run in the playoffs. So, you, you know, you mentioned uh, a couple of years ago when they added, uh, I can't remember everyone, but it was like the Rangers basically made a ton of moves. Because I, I remember Vitrano was one of the guys. Uh, there was somebody from, I think, Vancouver because it was someone that Toronto wanted too. Uh, and the Rangers did. They loaded up. They yeah, added a bunch yeah, of Mott. They picked up Mott. Yeah, Tyler Mott. They, That's yeah. it, right, because Leaf fans really wanted him. And then, yeah, uh, <laughs> it was, he was fine. Uh, it didn't, didn't end up becoming the uh, massive difference for either team. But, yeah, you guys had that deadline. Of course, 94 is famous. Um, how much pressure do you think is on Chris Drury to do something of significant significance at this deadline? Because, like, wow. here, I'm having trouble really putting the, the screws to the Maple Leafs just because every time I look out at the landscape of who's even available, it's kind of like, eh, all right, fine, I guess. There's a ton. I mean, you made a coaching change. Um, they really shocked a lot of people when they let Gerard Galant go. I mean, they uh, went to a Stanley uh, the conference final. All right, they got bounced by Jersey in seven games, but I think, like, wow, they let the coach go. And you bring in Peter Laviolette, and that made sense, and it's worked, and he's been terrific. And I was really on board with the uh, Laviolette uh, hiring because of how much success he had early on with, with the Islanders, Hurricanes, and, and of course, with Philadelphia and, and, and the Predators. Um, you don't make a change at coach and then just sit idle and just – because when is it going to be about the players? You keep changing the coach – but you're not really changing the players, and that puts the pressure on the general manager. Okay, you keep changing the coach, and, and you keep getting bounced early. You're not winning a cup. You're not making a run. So whose fault is it? It must be the players. And then it, then you turn to the core players and the guys that are under contract, and you're up against the cap. So what are you going to do uh, to follow through with the move at coach? And that means the deadline, you got to do something, and they will. It's just a question of do you give up a Kako? Do you give up a draft capital? Um, how much does he is he willing to give up for the players that are available? But uh, yeah, there's a lot of pressure on Chris. He's a great guy. I think he's a really good general manager. Um, but he's been a winner in his life, and I think he wants to win here. And I think this deadline is going to apply a lot of pressure on him to go out there and do that. Okay, so you know we've had the Matt Rempe fever up here too, right? Like I, I don't know if you're aware of just what a big story he is in Canada, but. We've genuinely discussed him more than Connor McDavid or Matthews over the last couple of weeks, like legitimately. Wow. 
he, oh, uh, it's been everything because people love old school hockey and some of the tilts that he had, like the first one uh, in the winter classic, I think you were at that game. He yes. just drops the, <laughs> he drops the mitts right at the face offs. He's a huge kid. Uh, just a ton of heart. The last fight though, that he has, it opens up this conversation about, Hey, how much should he be doing here? Is he doing too much? All of this. And, you know, I, I've been a little reluctant uh, when it comes to that conversation because I think he's a 21-year-old kid. He'll figure out the league. There's going to be people around him that give him some advice and some lessons. You already saw, like, other hockey podcasts like Cam Jansen say that they're, you know, he'd love to be able to teach this kid how to, you know, pick his battles better but also how to fight a little bit better. But, yeah, you said that, you know, he's obviously popular in New York. He's caught, he's created a little buzz in New York. But But what is it like? Because I'm telling you, here it's huge. Here it's been... I think I've mentioned him on every single show since he, yeah, since he made his debut. It has really been incredible. It's been fun. For somebody who fights to get more hockey talked on, on our air, he's yeah. been a godsend. You know, he makes his NHL debut in an outdoor game, first time that's ever happened. Fights uh, Matt Martin. Um, and then I thought Saturday was just incredible. I mean, that, that bout with Delorier was a classic. It, it felt like it lasted a minute. That That was old school, fun. Uh, and then he gets the game-winning goal. I mean, <laughs> that hasn't hel- that hasn't happened for a Ranger uh, to uh, a rookie to have a, a fight and w- a game-winning goal. Uh, I think it was since like Kelly Miller in 1985. It was like crazy stuff. Uh, but then you're, he he made a mistake on Sunday. He did. I mean, uh, the the fact that he picked the fight with Olivier makes it even worse. You can't fight every night. And there's also there's no. It's the Columbus Blue Jackets. No offense to them. They're looking for motivation. You handed it to him on a platter, and then he loses the fight, and then the Rangers end up losing the game. And I don't. And I think that was a common denominator in that. So then they don't scrap on Wednesday because you can't fight every night. But now Saturday, you got to go with Reeves, right? It's hockey night in Canada. You got to do it. You know. So I just think that it becomes kind of. Uh, unnecessary because he could play. I mean, the Rangers, mm. I, I thought Dave Maloney said something in one of our broadcasts the other day. He's like, you know, right now they want to see who stays and who goes. Is Matt Rempe going to play in a possible game seven in the conference final? What he does in these last 20 games is going to determine that. And his fighting ability is not going to be what gets him in that game. It's going to be his ability to stand in front of the net, screenshots, play eight, nine, ten minutes of quality hockey on that fourth line with Enstrom and Gaudreau and help this team win a Stanley Cup. And he's not going to be able to do that in the box. So this is fun. It's exciting. It gets people um, going. But at the end of the day, this kid, I think, can play and contribute in other ways. So at some point, he's going to have to you know, settle this down. So I think once we get through Saturday, they don't play again until Monday against Florida, and they don't play another game until the following Saturday against St. Louis. Maybe by then, things will calm down. But for me as a hockey guy, when I'm getting thrown you know, Knicks and exhibition baseball and combine at me, uh, Rempe was a welcome sight. We've had a lot of fun to talk about him. Listen, I love football. I love football. I I, I used to put the combine on when I was in university as like background noise television. And that's when guys actually used to go to the combine. <laughs> like anyone who is talented would perform at the combine. Uh, now it's like guys don't want to participate. And yet still it's a huge story. Uh, not for me. I just, I, I'll wait, I'll wait and I'll, I'll see at the draft and then uh, send me the relevant information from the combine that I need when it comes to draft stock. But yeah, I, we, we just can't be devoting that time. We're, we're still sticking with hockey. Do you think he's going to fight Saturday though, with the shiner with the face, because he still looks like he's in pretty rough shape to be taking on a guy like Reeves. 
Well, that's see, that's the thing. I don't that I don't know. Like I don't know what condition he's going to be in. Like I said, many people thought that there'd be a rematch with Olivier on Wednesday. That didn't happen. So he'll be almost a week removed. So if he's not ready, then by all means, then he shouldn't do it. For, but I'm just wondering this this kid was the one that challenged Olivier. Mm-hmm. How it's hockey night in Canada? <laughs> yeah, I just I, it's going to be awful tempting, isn't it? But it, I don't know what conversation uh, Laviolette will have with him. You know, th- this is interesting game. I mean, the Rangers, mm-hmm. you know, Carolina's kind of crawling up. They got a game in hand. Uh, it's I, I think there's bigger fish to fry here. But the temptation just might be too great. And this is considered, the, I guess, the heavyweight, right? Ryan Reeves is yeah. the guy. We had him here in New York. We know yeah. how good he is and how important he is in that particular. God, it would show me something if he's able to abstain from that. Uh, the, the bright lights and what that kid probably is going to be feeling, getting a chance to play in that game. But uh, I, I, for me, honestly, I'm good. I, I think, you know, go out there, try to win a game against the team you might be facing in the first round of the playoffs. So that that's something yeah. you got to file away as well. Um, I think they've got more important issues here, but uh, I'm not going to mind if he does it because it could be entertaining. Well, I'll tell you this from a, the storyline standpoint, like this is basically the movie goon, right? Is the guy who used to be on your team, the old heavyweight champion from your team, the guy who's basically been the belt holder for, I don't know, last at least like seven, eight years, Ryan Reeves. I think that, He's been pretty clearly at the the top of the mountain, or at least very close to it. And yes, uh, did was a New York Ranger for the kid to go and fight him with a bruised up face. It's like that's a movie, and he does it, and he does it even halfway successfully. And yeah, everybody in Toronto is gonna know his name. Everyone is gonna tap into what he, who he is, what he's doing, all of this different stuff. It'll be admirable. I don't know if he's in the peak condition to be doing it against a guy like Ryan Reeves. I would say that right. based on his last fight. And what I just saw last night from Ryan Reeves, which is that he can still chuck him and he's still incredibly strong, that I would probably strongly advise against. This is this is one of those things where, God, it would be it would be so fun for the game, but it would also actually I think be a tilt moment for the conversation if he gets if he gets plastered two times in a row by two like old school big time heavyweights. And I wonder, uh, I got to know Ryan when he was here, and I, I, th- I think he's a really good guy, and I think he gets it. I'm wondering, would he get it here, too, and say, you know, because I'm sure they'll have a conversation in warm-ups. Am I I being too nice a guy? Am I just being too out there to think that if Reeves talks to him and looks at him and goes, I I don't think it would be right to do it? Or does he he not care because, hey, I'm a Leaf, you're a Ranger, I I don't worry about that? Or does the code tell you, I don't think this would be right to take advantage of a kid who physically might not be ready after what yeah. had happened uh, the week before. No, I think that's really interesting. I, to me, if, if I was Reeves, I would go, listen, I'm not going to start it. I'm not going to be the one that's looking for it because I don't have anything to prove to you and you need to prove something to me. But the second you yap, the second that, you know, you cause a little bit of a ruckus, I'm, I'm going to put you down. You know, like I, I'm not going to entertain that. I'm not going to give you a grace. The grace for me is going to be that I'm not going to be the one that puts the first slash on you. Right. I'm not going to be the one that starts to try to, Get it going in the corners. That that would be the like outsider's version of what uh, I would think is the appropriate level of a code with Ryan Reeves. 
Yeah, and I think the Rangers would probably try to talk him out of it. They don't think he's physically mm-hmm. ready. So if he yeah. doesn't challenge Reeves and doesn't chirp Reeves, that maybe Reeves will go, all right, no, that's fine. Nothing happened. I don't feel challenged. But, you know, you can't take advantage of that and then, you know, mm-hmm. chirp him when it's understanding that he's not going to go after you. I wouldn't expect Reeves to, to bite his lip at that point. But uh, yeah. Uh, just interesting because there is people don't realize. Like, I go, I fight all the time because I do shows with guys that aren't hockey guys, so they don't get fighting now, and it's hard to explain it to people that yeah. it isn't part of their culture. Um, but even I like sometimes just cringe at it the way the way things have changed. But people don't realize the code. Some of the nicest guys in sports are the enforcers. Like they they get it, they understand it, and um, I'm just wondering if Reeves, being a veteran would kind of feel that moment and realize that it might not be the right thing to do if he's not challenged to challenge him. Well, the thing is, Reeves is a smart guy, too. Like, Reeves gets it. This isn't just some dude who's going to be out there and knows that, you know, he needs to make the fight happen or that this is the way that he's... His line's been playing well lately. Um, I I don't think that, for him, he's going to feel any kind of need to prove that he can beat Matt Rempe. It'd be one thing had Rempe not lost that last fight and he was coming in here looking great. And I think yeah. that Reeves would be just very much chomping at the bit to kind of humble him. But because of the last fight, I do think it puts a little bit of a damper on it. Um, okay, so, you know, you mentioned the the people that you do hockey conversations with and, and south of the border. And, okay, so I get that Rempe and the code and fighting, that that creates some buzz. And to me as a hockey fan this is why i still love it is because i want more people in the tent always from everywhere and i love that part of the game i love that there's a physical element i love that there's fighting um i think that to me that's what makes hockey special and that if they try to continue down this path of just we're only a skill sport that it's going to suffer and it's going to lose viewership and eventually um yeah it's just it's going to become just even a more niche sport but i'm curious about you know new york is supposed to be the market that matters the most in the States. Like it is, that's the one that's the crown jewel. That's, Oh man, if the Rangers could make a cup run, God, it would be just so good for the sport. And you know, now there's more coverage from ESPN. They've got this great deal with Turner as well, where they get awesome coverage, great panels. The game is being marketed a lot better South of the border, but it it feels to me. And I, I brought this up with Ryan Callahan the other day that Matthews playing in a Canadian market seems to have, really cut him off from American fans that maybe they don't tap in or that they don't care about this guy as much as maybe they would other great American born players. Like Patrick Kane has his game the other night and granted he won multiple cups and he also played for an extremely important market in Chicago, but everybody gets him. Everybody seems to love him and understand him. And yet I I wonder what your guys's relationship with Austin Matthews is because for us, like in Canada, again, a much smaller country, easier to kind of get on the same page with sports wise. We have like Shea Gilgis Alexander. He's playing down in Oklahoma city. Everybody here knows he's great. Everybody here can't wait for him to kind of come to town and be able to see him. Is it anything uh, like close to that when it comes to Matthews? Because we're looking at someone who might end up being not just like the greatest American player of all time. He he might end up being the greatest goal scorer of all time. Uh, I, I think what's really helped is the move to ESPN and TNT because we're seeing him a lot more than we did before. NBC seemed to be a little tentative on showing the Canadian franchises because it would hurt the rating. They wouldn't be able to get the local market because it's such a regional sport, right? So when you put the Rangers and Flyers on, you know that 80% of your audience is going to be Flyer fans or Ranger fans. But if you put Rangers Leafs on national television, then you might only get the Ranger fan here in the States and, and you'll lose 
some of the rating. It doesn't seem like ESPN or TNT care about that. And part, maybe part of it's because of TNT's relationship with the NBA, and they realize that it's not about the teams, it's about the athletes, it's about the stars. They're putting Connor McDavid on more. They're putting uh, Nathan McKinnon on more. Um, they're putting on Austin Matthews more so that the fans can see how talented these athletes are. And Toronto's not Edmonton. I mean, you know, we have a Toronto team in baseball. Like so, people. So it's starting to happen. I think a little bit more. But it's such a regional sport where it's people love their teams. They care about their teams, and it's a lot like baseball that way too. Where like we get calls from Yankee fans that don't even really. They love their team, but don't even pay attention to any of the other teams in the market. They just care about yeah. their team. So that. But when you get a singular talent like that, and you put them on ABC on a three a three o'clock on a Saturday. People are going to pay attention. People are going to see. I think McDavid's got a little bit more traction because he's just so good. (laughs) But this kind of season that Matthews is having with 53 goals, a kid born in San Francisco, raised in Arizona. I mean, this is so American. It makes you sick. (laughs) So, yeah, if he was playing for an American friend, if he was playing for Pittsburgh, forget about it. If he was playing for the Rangers, forget about it. But I think you're starting to see gain some traction where people are really beginning to notice these stars in Canada. How can you not? They're just too good. Yeah. See, this is this is what I find fascinating about it. So like with the NBA model, you can play anywhere and be one of the faces of the league, right? Like we've seen that like everybody knows who Giannis Attentacumbo is. And I again it's a league that is driven by stars. I know that hockey is closer to baseball, like you said, it's the same thing here, right? People care about the Blue Jays, they consume all one hundred and sixty-two, and then you ask them to name you know, five guys on the Yankees and, and they, they can't do it. Like they just don't like, they're like Soto is there and judge is there because judge kills us every time he comes to town and the Jays fans wanted Soto desperately. And we thought that the, we were going to be able to acquire him for basically cents on the dollar in a trade. If uh, we didn't land Shohei. you know how our off season went poorly, right. poorly, 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 but with Matthews and people are going to hate me for even bringing this up. But my thing with him has always been, yeah, at some point with these short-term deals, are you not going to want to be uh, someone who everybody in America knows? Like, are you not going to be want to be a great American-born player who goes home and gets that recognition south of the board? Because it doesn't seem to be working for him that way, like the NBA model in America where everybody in America cares. And maybe that's just what comes to with the territory of being a country where you're great in every like every sport. You've got stars in every sport, and so it's harder to you know, pay attention to the guy that's playing in Toronto. But yeah, he is, he is genuinely has a shot at becoming the greatest American born player ever. And, and like, I, yeah, I just, I never feel like he is marketed as, Oh my God, that way in the States, especially on a national level. Well, I will say one other thing. It would really help if he won. Cause I think, yeah, of that, course. you know, listen, LeBron James is great, but you know how it is in the States. It's like, well, how many championships have you won? Yeah. You know, uh, and so if he if he ever won the cup, and the same goes for McDavid too, I think that would you know, I think add to the legend a, a lot more. And then we'd obviously see more playoff games on national television, him playing on the grand stage. Mm-hmm. You know, him only being in the second round once hasn't really helped. Same thing with McDavid, the one run to the conference final a couple of years ago, but that's when you get people to pay attention. Not so much, you know, what LeBron James does on a November against the Raptors. It's look at all those great moments in the postseason. Yes. So I think Matthews getting involved in the playoffs, McDavid going deep, that could also gain a lot of traction here in the States as well. Well, let me, let me close it with this. Who do you think is more famous in the States right now, Eichel or Matthews? Oh, I, I, I <clears throat> Listen, it helped Eichel that he won the Cup last year 
Right. I still think Matthews is is probably more because you know Buffalo is just Buffalo is so frustrating that there's such a fun um, uh, fan base and all that. But I I, I just I think Matthews is is bigger than Eichel just because I think he's been better. I think he's been on. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, no, no offense to the Golden Knights, but the Sabres and Golden Knights are, are still not the Leafs even here in the States. There's, there is something about being an original six team that I think helps Matthews tremendously. Okay, so before you go, I, I got one non-hockey topic for you because uh, I think one of the reasons why, you know, you resonate with a lot of people is because you do a great job tapping into being a voice for fans. And the way that sports culture has been going has is very much like player, 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 player to the point where... You know, I've got some young guys who work on the show and like they hate the idea that Tyrese Halliburton has to play 65 games in the NBA to be able to get uh, like his full contract extension stuff. And like that aside, it just feels like the way we're going with sports talk is that um, guys like you and I who will be hypercritical of a player or who will stick up for a fan base vocally and say like it's about the team and it's about the fan base that is becoming less and less and less and more modern fandom I find is very much attached to the player, which used to be, you know, very rare. Like when I was a kid, it was like, okay, you could be an MJ fan. You'd be a Gretzky fan, be a fan of maybe the greatest, greatest, greatest players, but everything else was just, you know, the team, the team, the team, the team, the fan, the fan, the fan, what's good for the team. What's good for the fan. Um, I'm curious if you think that this is this trend that we're kind of seeing the overly apologetic, really be reluctant to criticize way more player friendly thing if it's starting to come back around or if you think that it's going to just continue to escalate and go this way, the, the stronger grip that teams get on PR, uh, their PR, the more that athletes have kind of their own access to their own media and don't need to be reaching out to kind of other links that they're making their own documentary films. Like how do you see this thing going correction or just super speed forward the way that we're going? I think, I think it's going to be super speed. I mean, um, mm. go the way we're going. I mean, I got a six-year-old son, and he talks about Messi and Ronaldo. He talks about Matthews. He talks about uh, McDavid. He's not talking about teams. Um, I, I got friends who have young kids that they're buying the jerseys of the players. They're not in love with teams. They want the player because that's what gets them excited. You know, you you, so you invest in a team, and then you get disappointed. But a player – these guys don't disappoint as much. And with social media, I can get the information. It's just a different world. It just feels like it caters more uh, to the player than it does for the teams. And it feels like the younger generation, I think that's why the NBA is so popular, that it just seems to be about you know following the player. And these guys bounce around. LeBron James has been on how many different teams, right? Um, and I think that's kind of the way it's, it, it, the sports now try to market it more about the players, more about the teams and, and the money that they're making and how transient everything is. It, it, it feels like uh, the, the horse is out of the barn and it's just not going to change. Mm. I I, it, I'm trying to be more optimistic I, about it because I hate that. <laughs> I hate that so much. <laughs> I get to, Nothing drives me more crazy. I get it when you're a little kid. Like, here's the thing. When I was a little kid, I loved the Seattle Supersonics. Why? Because they had Kemp and Peyton, right? Like, I, it hit me right when I was just entering – the perfect sports fandom stretch, which was I didn't want to cheer for the best team, which was Michael Jordan. I wanted to cheer for the fun, cool guys that were throwing alley-oops to one another. And I went, this is great. I love these guys. But then I stuck with the Sonics until they moved them, obviously. And now I hate the Thunder more than anything. But that's what I cared about was the Sonics. Like, I would watch their crappy games when they were genuinely trying to tank, like, the movie Major League so that they could sell the team. And I was still going, like, the team, the team, the team. I'd like, I just, I hope it, I hope it comes around a little bit. I really do because I would just, I would hate to just only cover the sports through the lens of, yeah, who is where and 
uh, star player only. That sounds depressing to me. Maybe this is just done. Maybe we what we're doing is just over. When we were younger, right? We were willing yeah. to sit there and watch bad. I mean, I grew up a Mets fan watching them lose 100 games a year. I grew up a Giant fan watching the team not make the playoffs. Kids don't have to do that now. They've yeah. got access to other games. Why do I have to, Dad? Why do I have to watch your lousy team? I'm going to go watch this team. I'm going to go watch yeah. this player. You know, and um, you don't have to get your heart broken because, sorry, that team stinks. I'll just move on to another one. It's um, it's sad because the the level of commitment I just don't sense is there. Huh. Hey, Don. Uh, again, I really appreciate you making time today. Uh, enjoy the game. And enjoy, uh, yeah, this week and, and trying your battle constantly to get more hockey coverage on your show. Thanks, buddy. Uh, it's, it's, it's been fun. Thanks, man. Cheers. Don LaGreca, co-host of the Michael K. Show on ESPN Radio and the Yes Network and uh, host of Game Misconduct Podcast, who fills in as uh, the New York Rangers play-by-play voice. And, yeah, okay, I, I'm really excited for Saturday night. I feel like, you know, this is two teams that are hot at the right time. Leafs just coming off of a seven-game win streak. They've won 11 of their last 12 both teams basically feeling a ton of fan pressure. Like if Don said that, like I believe them, that their fans really want them to add. So both teams really hoping that they could kind of prove something. I, I really, really, really would love to see a playoff style game between these two teams. Like real intense, really good attention to detail, tight game where both, both these groups look like they're at the the tippy top of the mountain right now. Cause man, that, and both of them kind of playing for, Hey, RGMs. I hope you're watching this. I hope you're making moves. Anyways, I do want to, I, I wanted to get to Don because he was on the line, but I do want to close the thought that I had about Labushkin and the trade deadline. And then I'm going to take a break and I'm actually going to go talk about the goaltenders for a little bit, because again, the Rorschach test and the embrace debate time. But for me with this trade with Labushkin, Again, you got a guy who last year on Buffalo led their team in block shots. You got a player who reportedly Anaheim was reluctant-ish to move because of the way that he, the, the style in which he played and that rubbing off on some of the younger players. He ends up going for a third round pick, which some people think is rich. I don't agree. A third and a sixth is kind of, it, it's not nothing, but it's a pretty damn good price especially considering you got the double retention. And here's the thing. He ended up getting traded to the Anaheim Ducks for a fourth round pick. That was at that full slate. That was at that full salary. Feels like pretty commensurate. Feels like, yeah, you, you paid on a very understandable price. To me, the main thing has always been the philosophy behind it, as I kind of mentioned on the outside of the show, which is you've only got the assets to take one major swing. So don't remove one for a middling asset or for someone that's not going to be here long term. Because God, imagine if a player does become available this offseason. Imagine there is that, that guy who really fits and all of a sudden the Leafs are in a situation where you go, like almost like the Tanev one, where nobody wanted to give a first-round pick. That's why I, I think there was a report that one team was willing to do it, but Dallas liked the trade package more or that there were terms. I can't remember exactly what it was. I, I, I saw it yesterday. It's fallen out of my brain. I should have written it down. But you don't want to be in a situation where if that player does become available, that you have no choice but to package Easton Cowan in the trade because you don't even have anything else that can get you into the conversation. And that's kind of how it felt with Tanev was like, you have no choice but to pack anything but the first because the first is all you have. The first is all you have. You don't have any other draft picks, so you got to get this thing done. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Keep your powder dry. 
Go and make the move. Go and add if something else becomes available, but don't make a move just for the sake of it. And don't just add a rental for an exorbitant price that you don't think is going to materially change the outcome of your season. Anyways, I like it. I think it's a good fit. I also don't view it as this guy is going to be the top pairing dude just because he's with Morgan Riley. I think that they're going to find a way to sort of spread the love around. That it's going to be Riley, maybe Labushkin, Lilligren, maybe Brody. And then clearly I think McCabe and Benoit is a, is a thing for you as of right now anyways. So you added some depth. You added a right shot D. You added to the, your penalty kill. You added another shot blocker. You added another physical force, which also should be noted because now you've got McCabe, you've got Benoit, and you've got Labushkin. That's three of your defensemen who will really thump somebody, who will really hit someone. And, and we're all going to talk, oh, the game gets more physical in the playoffs. You need a guy more physical in the playoffs. Well, Leafs now have one of the more physical blue lines in the entire NHL. That's just a fact. For those of you, and myself included, that were criticizing this team in the past for not having that makeup come playoff time, well, that's changed. That's changed. Now they've got that. They've got some thump back there. Anyway, I just I like it all around. I do think that there's some pressure on the Leafs in order to add more. Uh, I really wouldn't mind another forward for this group, some adding some depth there, because yeah, they're going to get Yarncroc back, but I, I still think that they could use another middle sixish type of guy that you feel like could score a big goal in the postseason, somebody that could replace Nick Robertson in your lineup, someone that maybe depending on the matchup pushes some people down and allows you to remove Ryan Reeves if he's not going, even though the fourth line has been phenomenal lately and they're showing a lot of promise. Holmberg continues to play extremely well. I, I still wouldn't mind that. But this takes a little bit of the pressure off of, okay, you got to get something done deadline day. You got to just grab a right shot D and maybe not someone that you think is the fit. According to Elliot Friedman, you know, in 32 Thoughts Today, the Leafs explored a, a bunch of these guys. They, you went through the list. And yeah, they. I'm guessing they liked... Labushkin the most out of all of the, all of the guys that were available. So I'm into it. I think it's a good deal. And I think it's going to be a fascinating week in terms of, yeah, how much pressure gets put on this team over the coming days, because they've got this game against the Rangers and they've got this game against the Bruins. And I think if they play in those admirably and they win those two games, it's going to make people go, no, no, now, now you gotta, now you gotta throw that first round, but now you gotta just go get a little bit more aggressive. You can't just stand on your, sit on your hands. All right. You got the double retention. What was it for? It's gotta be for another move. It's gotta be for something else, which I think it is right. Cause he's a pending free agent. So you didn't ask for double retention and try to keep a, a bunch of salary cap space open just to not add somebody. But what's that going to be? I, I think is, you know, pretty fascinating. Anyways, uh, let's take a quick break. Let's come back. And then I want to dive into the goaltending situation and, and why I think that, yeah, what, what, what I think we're really missing about this debate. That's next. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm telling you, I was kidding off the top about Center Universe or joking around. Being a little hyperbolic, but something about that first trade happens and you go, all right. Let's see what else is cooking. Let's see what else is going on. Makes it real. Makes it real. Really makes you feel it. Like, okay, right. Yeah, it's deadline time. This was a concept. This was an idea before. This was a thing that other teams in other cities were doing, but not the Leafs. Had to wait and see. Discussion, debate. Now we're here. They, they added somebody. They've added Ilya Lubushkin. We did, by the way, uh, an emergency trade podcast last night. We got off the air of Leafs talk, Sammy and I. Uh, and shout out to our production squad. 
because they stuck around and they waited it out. We, we set a time, but happened right after. Because that's the most annoying thing is when you get off the air and then the news ends up happening. And you're like, well, I just did all that. But I, I did laugh thinking how many markets, how many places have emergency podcasts or have this much coverage? Like if I was a fan of another team, this is what would piss me off so much about the Maple Leafs. This is what would drive me insane is, oh, you traded for a sixth defenseman from the Anaheim Ducks and it's going to lead every podcast in the country. Cool. Thank you. Emergency podcast for Ilya Labushkin. The guy that was on the Sabres and Ducks and was traded for fourth and third round picks. Makes under 3 million bucks to see that guy. Yeah. Okay. Emergency pods. Either way, they're up, including last night's game. So, hey, do me a favor. Subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe to Leafs Talk. Do all those things. Uh, Five stars. It always helps. The subscriptions always help. The shares always help. Um, But, okay, the other thing from last night, and and I discussed it with Sam, but I want to get into more detail uh, uh, with it right now because it it really starts tonight. And I, I heard on the morning show, Josh Cloak finishing going, you know, here's a couple of thoughts. This is how they feel about the goaltending situation. Is that I... I was prepared for this to become a debate. Which of these two guys would be the starter? Which of these two guys would end up being their postseason goalie? Which one of these two guys has the higher ceiling, right? I've been asking these questions for weeks. I asked Kelly Rudy last time he was on. That was the name of the podcast. Which of the goaltenders has the higher ceiling? He said Samsonov. That was his choice. But so the game happens last night and Wool played really well. And and I'm, I got to tell you, stylistically, and fit for this team-wise, I'm more a fan of the way Wool plays. I just am. I, I think that most Leaf fans now, having experienced what they did with Ilya Samsonov this season, are scarred. That it's, it's going to be hard for them to trust that goaltender again. And frankly... We've had the the goaltenders who have struggled with the mental side of the game, maybe not to the degree of Samsonov, but we've had the Jack Campbells and we've had, it was different with Freddie Anderson. It wasn't so much of a confidence issue. It was more like being upset with the way things were being handled, but still it was, it was kind of rocky at the end there with, with that player and with that goaltending debate. So I, I understand the position of most people where they've gone, nope, we've seen the Samsonov experience has played out and we're not into it and we don't trust the guy. And anytime a puck's going to go in the net, you're going to start to feel more nervous. Whereas with Wool, he makes you feel a little bit more comfortable like he does with me because that trauma isn't there. But we got to look at this thing from just an actual practical standpoint and go across the board and actually evaluate this. Number one, um, to the goaltending coaches out there that are like, watch the games. It's like, it's wild. Anyway, I was surprised at the pushback that I got when I said, yeah, no, I think that Samsonov starts Saturday and he's still your starting goaltender for right now. The, the, the real strong case for Samsonov is pretty clear. It's that he was your goaltender last year. He was incredible on home ice. And he's the only goalie that you've won a playoff series with since I was in high school. His game is also bounced back. And as we've gone over many times with this player, he seems to thrive when he gets the net. And he seems to struggle when he has to battle for it. Adversity really is not this guy's cup of tea. Makes it hard to believe that he's going to end up with a contract extension in Toronto, to be honest. But this is an development year. This is about, like, what is going to get you the, the Stanley Cup. This isn't about, like, well, Joe Wall is going to be the future of this team, so you got to put him in the net. Anyways, I saw 
there was a ton. Of, I got a bunch of tweets. I got people going, I lost respect for you thinking Samson. I was like, okay, this is crazy. But that's the internet. So who cares? Most of that stuff just gets muted. I just, I guess a little surprising about the reaction given how well Samsonov has played since returning and given that this guy does have a track record of success. We generally gravitate towards the new thing. I think that always happens because the new guy represents more hope. The new guy represents more, yeah, it's just more, more you can be more optimistic about the, the next thing. You haven't seen it. You haven't had the trauma with Joe Wool, right? Although he has one, bla- but one bad playoff series and people will turn on him too. Or at least there will be a big debate about it. It'll be it'll feel very much like Freddie Anderson that first year in Toronto, where he killed them in the first couple of games, but then he battled to get them back into the series, and then he you know killed them in Game Seven, and people went back and forth and discussed it all off season. But I just want these couple things as a, a reminder: is that one Samsonov and Wool, when they predicted as like one guy's the old vet and the other guy's the young upstart, plucky upstart, they're two years apart. One guy's twenty seven, one years one guy's twenty five. I'm just I'm just noting that because it seems like the people go the other way of one guy's ancient and one guy's young. But this is the more important point to me. And yes, you could do strength of schedule and yes, you can do all kinds of other things, but Samsonov year is kind of a throwaway when you look at the the stats across the board, right? Because he was dreadful. He played himself almost out of the league. That's how bad he was. Almost out of the NHL. To me, didn't think that he would be back. To me, it was purely when Joel Wool went down with the injuries. God, you got to survive. You got to survive this and get your starting goaltender back. And then eventually he will clearly be your 1A if he can stay healthy, which has been trouble with his career all along. Um, But let's just look at their best months. Like, let's just look at the splits and look at Joel Wool's best months. Because when people were really riding for Wool, when people were going, man, this guy, he's... He's the everything. It was in October. In October, which was his best month, the way that he started the season, Joel Wool started five games. He went three and two. Record doesn't matter in this situation, but he had a goals against of sub two, 1.89, with a save percentage of 942. That's awesome. That's awesome. Ilya Samsonov, when he returned, four games in the month of January, 939 save, 148 goals against average. And basically the minutes are, you know, it's it's a one-game difference between these two. They've both had incredible months. Wool has had been far more consistent, and that's why I think more people trust him, is that the baseline performance is much better. It just is. And at this point of his career, the way that he plays, it doesn't, he, he doesn't look as panicky in the net. He's always got his feet underneath him. He's positionally solid. He's very quiet with his rebound control. There's a lot to like about him. Samsonov has actually been the same. The thing is, Samsonov, the numbers are starting to tilt. The numbers are starting to go the other way in February, especially after that last start. But that last start was the only game where you went, oh, there's some kind of bad ones in here. There's probably mix in maybe a save here or there. Leafs played dreadful. Leafs played horribly. I did wonder, though, if he was in the net, would the Leafs have won that game last night? Like, that's a fair fair thought. I just, to me, I think that if you're going for upside, still the guy to me is Samsonov because he's proven more to you. He's also a higher pedigree player when it comes to the draft. Everything about him, high danger saves, all that different stuff. I think that he has the higher I can steal you a game potential. Do I think that 
Do I think that that's better for this team? I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. But I do think as of right now, the way that you got to handle this is continuing to pump the tires of this guy as your starting goaltender. This guy is your solution. This guy is the, the one that you're backing. Because if you start to trend towards Wool, if you start to give those hints that it's Wool's net and you lose them and you're back to Wool and Martin Jones, do you really want to play Joe Wool a bunch of games when he hasn't proven that he can stay on the ice like at all so far in his career? That would make me more nervous. I would rather have it that you keep Samsonov humming, that you have both guys, that you have Samsonov as the 1A, that you have Joe Wool as the 1B, gets the net a little bit fewer, a little, little fewer games, and then get to the postseason and then roll with whoever's the hot hand. And to me, I think it's a coin toss that probably lands 60-40 Wool. Maybe even a little bit more of that than that, considering, yeah, Samson, like Samsonov remains unproven when it comes to having to share the net. But either way, I was, I was shocked that people went, oh, no, it's Wool is the guy Saturday night, and Wool is immediately the starting goaltender based off of one start and just dismissed the run that Samsonov had, not just this year, but the year before when he was brilliant for the Maple Leafs, when he was genuinely a top 10 goaltender in the NHL by just about every single metric for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Like a top 10 goaltender is kind of the place you want to be. You can get that back. You got to be feeling pretty good about it. Anyways, let's take a quick break and let's talk to Ramon Shelburne. The Warriors are in town. They got in here late, but they're here and had a great, great, great discussion with Ramona about, you know, what the, what the Warriors and what LeBron, what they're all going to do in the future after her report a couple of weeks ago. That's all next. Very, very, very pleased to be joined by one of my favorite senior writer for ESPN. It's Ramona Shelburne. Uh, okay, so I was thinking about you this week because the Warriors are coming to town. And I, for since the trade deadline, I've been basically sitting on this thing like, okay, you know, uh, is this kind of an extended retirement tour for the Warriors? Is this kind of like a retirement for a dynasty? And they have this pull and play of going on a run and looking really great. And they have a first half against the Nuggets the other night where they play great and Clay fills it up and, and you know, the rest is history. Steve Kerr signs a two-year extension. I'm curious what your feeling is right now in terms of where this organization is at in the two timeline or bridge the gap approach and whether this is kind of the final season that will finally give us some clarity one way or the other. You know, I think um, there is, I think the the Warriors as we know them, the, the dynasty that you're referring to, I think that they are alive as long as Steph Curry is playing. Right. I think that's how everybody regards it is as long as Steph is there, it's still the Warriors as we know them. Draymond is sort of number two on that mountaintop. You know, it's like the Steph Draymond connection is really um, foundational to what they do. And he signed for four years, which is two years beyond Steph even. Um, and then there's the, and then Clay Thompson, I think it used to be Steph and Clay, right? With the Splash Brothers, but of course. because of injuries and his production, he's sort of fallen off a bit. And I think, I do think he stays there. I don't think he goes anywhere. I think he's, he, um, they find a way to get something done with him, but I think it's probably on that same timeline as Steph. And so, you know, Steph's got two more years after this one. And doesn't mean that they're going to don't, – I don't know that they can keep contending. Um, you know, there's an argument, are they contenders right now even, right? But they feel like a team that as long as, as, long as they got Curry and as long as Curry's still good, it's, it's a little like they're, they're still in it. And, and it's you – know, I would say the same thing about the Lakers, right? As long as they have LeBron and LeBron is still good, they got a shot. I, I don't, 
I don't, I don't think they're going to run away with the conference. I don't think they're going to be a great regular season team anymore because it's hard to do that over an 82 game series, but 82 game season, but in a seven game series, it's kind of hard to count those guys out. So Steve Kerr signs the two year extension, right. To line himself yeah. up with that same Steph Curry timeline. What you say depends on not only Steph Curry being there, but how he's good is, right. is a lot of this just in terms of what they're going to be willing to do asset wise or money wise tied to how he ages. Like, is that the unspoken part of this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Steph's still great. I mean, he's 36 right now, but he's still great. And I would say the same for LeBron. Like, has LeBron lost a step here and there? Yeah. Like, he's not as great with the lateral quickness, and he can't play defense for 48 minutes like he used to. But, like, last night I was just at the game in L.A., and in that fourth quarter, he was incredible. Like, can he do that for a whole game? I don't know. Uh, Maybe one game, but then over a course of seven games, I think that would be too much. But, you know, for, for a quarter here and there. But I think you're right about Steph. Like, as long as he's good, and, and I think he's going to be good for a while. Like, I think his game ages well. He dribbles well. He's elusive. He's a great shooter. You know, some of the issues that Clay has is he, he's never had that same ability to put the ball on the floor the way, the way Steph does. Um, he's always been more of a catch-and-shoot guy. And then now teams crowd him. And so if, you're, if you don't have somebody who can get him the ball with space around him to shoot, then it, it's harder for him because he has to make a move to get open, whereas Steph has always been able to make a move to get open. And and I, I don't see that changing. I mean, mm-hmm. I, he doesn't seem less quick to me, you know, so it's really just a matter of avoiding injuries. You know, this is the thing, though, is like if we're doing the compare and contrast with LeBron and Curry, um, uh-huh. and I, I do want to get into a little bit of LeBron with you later, is LeBron has always felt like very much at the forefront of being the GM, and not felt, actually, has been. <laughs> okay, there's a reason why we call him Le GM. And... Yeah, uh, he he makes it very clear what he wants. He uses his contracts as leverage to exert a little bit more power over the organization. We don't see that with Steph Curry. And what I found so curious was going into the deadline, he had, I I can't, I'm paraphrasing his quote, but it was something along the lines of, we can't keep doing things the same way. And the implication was by keeping this roster intact. Like that was your interpretation of it as well, yes? Of Steph? Yeah, when he said Um, those, that, or do you think that that was a little different? Because I yeah, thought that was him I, finally saying, let's do something here. And then they didn't. So I read that as we can't keep running back the same starting five. Like they, okay. they kept running back that starting five that wasn't working. Like Steve Kerr has mm-hmm. talked about this a lot. Like last season when they had Looney, Draymond, Clay, Steph, and Wiggins, that starting five had like, one of the best plus minuses of a, any five man unit in not just the league, but like league history. So that starting five was always their anchor. And this year they just kept running back to that starting five and it wasn't good. <laughs> like Wiggins wasn't good. Clay wasn't good. Looney wasn't good. And so they finally made a real shift in the last, I don't know, I guess it's a month or so since the trade that like trade that was a, so I think they did that. They They made that shift. I think it was, right before all-star break is when they made that, that big change where they have Pajemski in the starting lineup and they have Kaminga in the starting lineup now playing alongside Wiggins. Looney is barely plays anymore and Clay comes off the bench. And that, mm-hmm. that lineup has been a lot better. Like Clay as the sixth man has been a lot better than Clay in the starting lineup because I think he, um, I think he needs to play with, uh, a unit that can get him the ball with space. That's, that's, that's what's key for him. And when he was out there in those other lineups, they, they just 
you know, they didn't have that um, person creating for him and respecting his, his, his um, you know, they didn't have a playmate for him. So Draymond, Draymond can do all that for, for the, for, for um, Kaminga and for Wiggins. But I think it, it was different when they, they weren't running things for Clay and they weren't a focus for him. Whereas now in the second unit, you see Clay Thompson, when he's moved to the second unit, he's been great. And I think it's, I think they sort of found something here. And I don't, like, what is that? What is that going to do in the playoffs? I don't know. It's weird to see Clay Thompson coming off the bench, right? He's been such a foundational piece for them. Um, and it's weird to see Kaminga and Wiggins playing together, but it kind of works as long as Draymond is out there organizing the offense. Yeah, I, I guess sort of where I was going with that, though, is it's, it's kind of, okay, he wanted a change. He wanted something. But I think yeah. that the difference for Curry and LeBron in, in some sense is we on the outside, and I'm not saying you, but us on the yeah. outside sometimes look at Curry and we think, this guy's happy. He, he had six finals appearances. He, he finally got his MVP. He had his crowning achievement of getting another championship after Kevin Durant left. He's got his four rings. The Warriors have been so successful and naturally like Clay is older and Draymond is aging. Yeah. And maybe Curry isn't as dogged as or desperate, let's say, as LeBron James to win again. And I don't know, like, it feels like a bit of a misnomer. And so when they went through that deadline and they didn't add anything other than like, actually they subtracted, right? Because they took Corey Joseph off the roster and yeah. it was just like a, a cash saving move. Yeah, it was a I, I wondered move, how, yeah. yeah, I wondered how that's going to kind of play moving forward here with the Warriors. Like how content Steph Curry is going to be if the organization doesn't want to play ball with stuff like, even the idea of moving a Kaminga or the idea of moving some of the young pieces in order to acquire more win now pieces. And then that's when your piece with Woj threw me for a loop. It's like, well, they actually looked at getting LeBron and I was like, okay, well now I, I have no idea what's going on here. Yeah. Um, you know, I will say this. I think, um, I think that has been one of my questions too, is how long is Steph going to be patient? Cause it's not his personality mm-hmm. to, to do the kind of passive aggressive stuff that LeBron does. Like LeBron is like, you kind of know how he's feeling, right? You see it in the body language, you see it in the, in the tweets and the post game yeah. comments. Steph is always uh, very close to the vest. If he's feeling frustrated, I don't think he would ever put that out there publicly. And if he did, it would be very mild. It wouldn't call it, it wouldn't even ruffle feathers. And so I think, you know, that to me is um, like, I, I don't, I don't see Curry ever changing. Cause it's not, it's just not his personality. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he was frustrated, I think he would express it to the people who he needs to express it to. Um, and I, I don't think I don't see him there. I just think he is the, I think he is the loyal Dirk Nowitzki, Tim Duncan type. Like he just wants to be all, all his career with one franchise. He's that that'll be part of his legacy. And mm-hmm. um, I think that they've shown this willingness to be ultra aggressive. Like if you know their ownership, they're. they're they're willing to spend and I don't think they're ever going to like throw in the towel as long as they think they have a shot. And when you, as long as you have Steph Curry and he's good, you have a shot. So I think it's like, they're going to, they're You're going to see moves like, well, let's kick the tires on this LeBron trade. Right. Like let's, why not? Like you don't not, you don't get it if you don't ask. Right. And so they, that was one of the more surprising stories I've ever reported. Right. Um, in this, in the sliding doors way, but I, I think they will be aggressive this summer. I don't think they just run it back with what they have and they, allow the, the the product to diminish or or wither i think they're always aggressive and i like i wouldn't be surprised to see them make you know runs at a lot of the top trade targets that are that are going to be available this summer because that they actually have a good collection of assets they have their draft picks 
They have good young players. I don't think Kaminga would be traded, but I think you know they, some of the other younger players, like teams will ask about, and they, they, they sort of have the type of package that a lot of these contending teams don't have because they've been judicious with their, with their, their draft picks recently. And, mm-hmm. and also because they're willing to spend. They're willing to eat some bad money sometimes. So I, I think the Warriors are always going to be in that conversation until, they're, until they really don't have a chance. And, I, and, and look, their, their recent history tells you exactly how they behave when they don't have a chance. Remember 2020 when Steph was hurt and Draymond was hurt, Clay was out for the year. And when they get to the deadline, they, they made a couple of, of just moves to get underneath the luxury tax so they wouldn't get the repeater tax again. Like, people don't remember that part of it, but they, they made – remember they traded um, um, Kelly Oubre at the deadline? Remember that? Mm-hmm. And it was, like, kind of one of those moves that people don't remember. They, like, you, you forget it, but the Warriors totally just cleaned house just to get under the tax. So they, they'll do that when they don't have a chance. But mm-hmm. when you have stuff, you have a chance. So I – I, I don't I don't see Steph being frustrated because he's he's he knows like this is an organization that's always aggressive and that's always looking for a way to do stuff. Yeah. That's I guess that's why I just remain so to be honest, I think a lot of this actually just centers around their willingness or unwillingness to trade Kuminga. Because to yeah. to me it's yeah. like, hey, if you go into the off season and you're looking at Steph at thirty six years old and you think he's still great, he you, you I agree with you that I think his game is gonna age well. But uh-huh. can't, like he's he's still not a big. He, I, he's, this isn't five, six, seven more years of dominance, right? He's gonna have yeah. maybe two or three more years quite like this. And if they were really gonna signal to him, hey, we want one more ring for you, like all of a sudden we want to put you at five championship rings, like that. And and I know we always do this stupid game where it's like four is great, but then five and then oh, a six is Jordan. But really, that he would sort of have a chance at some of those things. And Kaminga just feels like this massive domino of them kind of sticking between wanting to be good to him and the past, but then sort of trying to remain a little, I don't want to say greedy, yeah. but that's what I'm saying. Greedy of trying to yeah, make sure. It is. That I mean, look, it's a Spurs forward. thing, right? Like, yeah. you know, they had this idea that they, you know, were going to be the Spurs, the next generation Spurs. And then how did the Spurs do it? They identified the right young guy to sort of pass the baton to. So it was David Robinson passing to Duncan Duncan passing to Tony Parker and Ginobili. Tony Parker and Ginobili passing to Kawhi. Like that was that is everybody's dream. And if you believe Kaminga is good enough for that, then it's worth it to hold on to him in these in these discussions. But if you if you don't believe that, which you know I, I think you have to you have to make a hard call here. So I think that I the sense I get when I talk to where I don't think they're ever trading Kaminga. I think they really believe in him and they think he's a special player and you know does that change if a if a true superstar who can really help them becomes available i don't know you have to wait to be asked that question right but because everyone's gas for kaminga and and i i think the answer is a pretty hard no right now but it's <laughs> it's a hard no right now but but those those conversations keep coming up right and that yeah th- thus far they have been unwilling to trade him you're right it's yeah. just you know he's especially with how he's played in the last Two months like he's really he's become the second leading tour like Jonathan yeah. Kaminga you know went from not even not starting playing 15 minutes a game to the second leading scorer on the Warriors and stuff in two months and, and completely changing the complex of their uh, the, the complexion of their team yeah I know he's only upped his valley and I gotta tell you uh I, I don't it doesn't matter how long I, wa- I watch sports it's just a constant humbling and reminder of how stupid I am and how little I know 
because when the Warriors last played Toronto and there was this, this it, like it was actually right around when Kaminga started to gripe about the minutes and there was a little bit of frustration with him in the organization. Yeah. And like the Raptors, everybody here was kicking around the idea of, would you trade Siakam for Kaminga? And I went, absolutely not, because you got to be able to get better than him. He's a guy who's shooting like 30% right. from three and he's arguing with this organization it's like what has he ever done yeah, yeah. and then basically from the day i said that forward he's been uh, incredible yeah, he and the up. raptors yeah. That, yeah and they settle for a yeah. uh, like a mishmash of kind of terrible or middling picks uh most of which came in a draft that they had already stated that they didn't want to be a part of so yeah um <laughs> I, I basically where i'm going with this is i'll never be a general manager or be asked to even speak yeah. at anything important or maybe even be like adjacent to these things um okay so back to the reporting of lebron well, I'll, though, I'll make you feel a little bit better i'll make you feel okay. a little bit better Try. i think there is a lot of kaminga success is because he's been playing with draymond green right okay like you know there is i mean i think he's a great young player on his own but Everybody, especially at that stage in, in their development, they need somebody who can put them in the right positions, who can set them up for success. And Draymond, whatever you want to say about him and his behavior and his antics on the court or off the court or whatever, that dude knows how to play and he knows how to be an incredible facilitator offensively. Like he, you know, you think of him as, this, I mean, he's, he's basically their center now, um, but he really is the point guard on offense and he, he makes everyone better. And I, I think it's, that's the secret sauce to the to the Kaminga jump. So, you know, give yourself a little break there. Cause, mm. <laughs> you know, Thank you take Draymond, Draymond out. Kaminga's still going to be good, but he but he needs somebody in that role. Yeah. All right. You know, maybe that's a little better. It comes yeah. to the Raptors, maybe he does. You don't get as much out of him. Um, okay. So one of my favorite things about your reporting uh, on this potential LeBron trade, or at least the ask of LeBron, was I got. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for the content as a, you know, sports. I know you're right. We dropped it right in that dead zone, Uh, right? When football, it was (laughs) glorious of you. Like I, I, I hope a lot of people bought you gifts, sent you flowers, did all kinds of things because it was a, it was a real gift (laughs) from the heavens that you ended up doing that. But the amount of side conversations I had with like other, just basketball friends, even off air, just the excitement of, well, what would this mean for this? You know, playing out the difference. Yeah. Well, if this was to happen or if this was real and this went this far, what does it mean for X and so forth and so on? And I want to go through my favorite two. And I think the consensus favorite two. the first one is, you know, in the reporting, you say this was pushed by Draymond or that, you know, he was a champion of this idea. But if you're going to be trading for LeBron James, the assumption is that Clay Thompson would have had to go in the deal. And this is someone who already went to the bench. And yes, his father played for the Lakers and I'm sure it wouldn't be the worst way for him to close out his career. But I guess a, do you think that that is the implication? It had to be clay. And two, uh, how do you think that's gone over for him? Because if I was reading that piece and I had already agreed to sacrifice going to the bench, I I don't know how I'd be. And I was a pending free agent. I I feel like I would be pretty pissed off. I mean, I, I get it. I don't think they ever got to the point where it was like, it would be this or it would be that. And, and quite frankly, like, I think the value of LeBron James in a trade is like such an incredible thought bubble right now, right? Because theoretically, he's, he's an expiring contract. He has a player option on his, you know, he's a player option for next year. So generally, you don't get as much value for players like that as, as, we, as you found out with Siakam, right? And so, um, you don't get as much if a guy can leave. And, and I, what would the Lakers have wanted for LeBron? I don't know. They never got to that point where they ever discussed names. 
But obviously, you can do the math. You have to do the math. Yeah. Okay, LeBron makes fifty million. There's another construction where you could do Chris Paul and Wiggins. That 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 also, if you put those two together, um, there's there's plenty of other constructions that don't mean Clay Thompson would have been in the deal. So I think if you the best way to describe this, and and I and I get what you're saying because I I had the same thought too, which is like, wow, how'd that go over? Um, because it was theoretical, because it was all about, it was just about whether or not they could talk LeBron into it, you know, like mm-hmm. whether or not you could, you could, you could um, push him and, and get him excited about it. Like nothing was going to move forward unless he gave a yes. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think everybody involved with the war, like, like whether that's, whether that's Steph or Draymond or any of the other players who would have been in, in, involved in this, discussion they all have deniability about who would be in the trade because it never got to the point where you would talk names right yeah <laughs> so, yeah kind of so. except for it's like if there was an awesome radio producer that was out there and i was talking to my boss like man it'd be so amazing to get this guy like in front of my current guy oh my god could you imagine and then all of a sudden i was like yeah, yeah but it never really got that far anyway uh and it that doesn't mean you would be fired maybe he could have yeah, worked with you who you know knows? like there's like, <laughs> total deniability there yeah I, I, I don't think, think like, armin like, would be like yeah dude i believe you <laughs> he'd be like uh well, no i'll tell you this I, yeah. the amount i hear things like this all the time and of uh, players calling other players trying to sort of recruit this happens a lot in the nba i mean some of the ones i hear i'm like oh my god like (laughs) i can't believe that call was placed right and the implication of those calls and like who would be in the deal and on and on and on like it's it's i don't i i don't think those players are even thinking those next steps right i don't i think it's just about can you get the star there and then you let the front office worry about who making the making the math work, um, but it's uh, it is it is you know uh, it's obviously a relevant point in in those in those discussions. But I think there w- I don't I don't see a way in which they would have come to an agreement on his value. I think his value is so is so hard to pinpoint because of the situation with his contract, because of how great he is, because of how much brand value he has. Like the Lakers would have. I, I, like, how could you even talk about, like, what you would want for a player of that caliber? Like, yeah. you want three first-round picks and Kaminga, then the Warriors would have said absolutely not, right? Like, that's not – you know, there's there's almost, like, no way to put a value on on a player like that because he's so iconic and because he means so much just to the league and the brand value. And um, I don't know. I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's obviously the next level, and that's the sports talk radio conversation, and that would have been the front office conversation – but I think for all the players involved, like they never really got to that level of discussion. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. But yeah. I just so I don't even think Clay would be like, oh, you guys are trying to I don't think Clay would do that because I think he for him, it would have been theoretical, too. Yeah, I, I just I honestly the that entire answer, uh, like the main thing I thought about was selfish, which is I really wish I had that level of accountability in my life where I could just kind of say whatever I want and be like, but it's for other people to figure out, you know, like yeah. I'm just dreaming of this yeah. scenario. And yes, does it come at the cost well, go of back the to like of the others? trade for Dame Lillard? Like they didn't <laughs> yeah. tell Giannis they were doing it because he, yeah. then he, then he wouldn't realize that, Oh, Drew holiday yeah. was getting traded. Right. Yeah. Like, like a lot of times they, they do that to protect their, their star players from that kind yeah, of, of scenario. Of course. The second part of this, and you actually mm-hmm. know because you did the reporting. So just indulge me for a second on this. You, When you get those reports, as again, an outsider, you always go, okay, well, who had what to gain by giving some of this information? And you try to put some of the puzzle pieces together. And it, I thought the most interesting thing in it is that, okay, this got up to Jeannie Buss, right? Like this wasn't just yeah. the conversations they had. Like Jeannie Buss 
took a look at it. And if she was going to be even willing to entertain it, I would have to think that the Lakers at least are wondering about what LeBron's position is moving forward and where he's going to be a year from now. And I don't want to get, I know like reporters don't like this going against other people's reports and especially colleagues, but you've seen Brian Windhorst, who's very connected with the LeBron camp saying that he's trying to, you know, re up with the Lakers. But I did wonder if part of this was almost a little bit of a test balloon ish in LeBron's world of, Hey, how would people react if I was a warrior next year? Like how, and the warriors even having that, because I don't think he would ever want to have the Kevin Durant situation where people are, you know, discrediting everything that he does in pursuit of another championship ring. But if we're just trying to think about like, okay, Curry, what would be best if, he, if we're trying to get him another championship? LeBron, what would be best? Well, the two of you guys joining forces seems like a pretty good idea on paper, especially given the way that the two of you play and elevate one another. Draymond has made no secrets about the way that, you know, he adores LeBron and would love to play with LeBron. And I, I guess the, where I'm kind of going with this is, do you think it's a 0% chance that LeBron would be interested in changing destinations and going to like, yeah, Steph Curry land to play out some of his career. Cause it, he's staying in California. If that's the case. Um, I don't think there's a 0% chance. I think it's something that could come back up in the off season. I, I don't, I don't think it will. I think this was the window because this, the, as you mentioned, like the expiring contracts were there now, right. Between Chris Paul and, and Wiggins and all these other, I mean, they're just, it's just harder to make the math work later. Um, But I do think the summer will be very interesting because LeBron has a player option. He doesn't have to do an, I expect him to decline the player option because then that gives him opportunity to do a new one. So you do the extension. It's like probably another two year deal or one and one. Right. Um, And he doesn't have to do that right away. He doesn't have to do that in July. He can do that in August or September, whenever he feels like. So if he does that, then let's think about what's happening this summer. He's going to go play in Paris on the Olympic team as long as he's healthy. Steph Curry is planning to play. Steve Kerr is the coach. He has very interesting Olympics. <laughs> right? Um, and, I, and I think it's like it's something that could hang out there for a while. And I, I don't think there is any motivation. Um, I know people like to get into who leaked what or whatever. And I, and I, without talking about reporting process, cause I it just, I don't do that. Um, this was not a leak. This was just something we found out. Right. And so I think it's like anybody, if you want to get into motivations or whatever, like I, I would stop you right there. Cause nobody wanted this. Like, this is not the kind of story people want out. Uh, it wasn't like, like test balloon, whatever it's um, we were just, you know, doing our job. Right. And we find stuff out sometimes. So I think it's um, I think this summer will be very interesting, but, I will say this. I do believe LeBron when he says he wants to stay a Laker. I do believe he likes being in Los Angeles. I do believe this is where he wants to stay. But, you know, he'll always make things interesting. (laughs) That's how he's been. Uh, So do you. The reporting is great. Uh, And, again, just from let me speak for everybody who makes content, and especially during this time. A hearty thank you, Ramona. Uh, thank you, you are so very much for... welcome. I understand. <laughs> I, we, I was doing a sports talk radio in LA when we when we put it out, and it was it was very. I mean that that long that that break after the All Star game was a long one. You know, yeah, it, it not was much going on. <laughs> no, uh, there was only so many days I could talk about death of the dunk contest. Uh, hey, yeah. Ramona, I know you got to run. I really appreciate yeah. the time. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. You got it, bud. Have a good one. Could have gone two hours with Ramona Shelburne. So much there. I really, here's the thing. Now I have stuff to pick a brain about next time.
Because yeah, we didn't even get, I had like five topics and I think we got through basically the Warriors. Anyways, they're in town tonight. Grange reported this morning. I woke up to it. I was like, oh, why are you doing a wake up call. He said uh, the Warriors didn't get in until 7.15 in the morning uh, after they played the Knicks last night. So something to keep an eye on tonight because a lot of that conversation with Ramona was about how they're old. They're old lads. Maybe their sleeping habits are a little thrown off and the, and the Raptors can get a win. But yeah, it does. Again, I, I'm, I wish I could have gone to this game tonight. I, I couldn't make it to this game. But because it, it does really feel like the Warriors dynasty retirement tour. Because I'll make this. This is the position that I stand firmly on. If you're not willing to trade Jonathan Kaminga, you're saying that you don't have faith or you don't believe that the old dogs are enough to get it done. You're looking towards the future. I like Kaminga now a little bit more than I did a month and a half ago. I mentioned it in the interview. He was playing dreadfully and he wasn't getting any minutes and he was griping about the said minutes and he couldn't space the floor. And I just thought, man, this is, this is a guy that is not going to fit what the Raptors are doing. I didn't see how, and I, can I be honest, confession time, as good as Kaminga has been and as much as he's up to his trade value and as much as, Trading Siakam for him uh, would have been a, a massive win compared to what they ended up getting. I still don't like the fit of him next to Scotty Barnes. Like I, I don't, I don't think that those two players would have gotten the best out of one another. Um, building around the two and having it, nah, I, I don't think it would have been great. Stand by that, but yes, clearly would have been a better trade. But the whole we've seen this with the Raptors but to a lesser, 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 far, 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 far lesser extent. I just don't really believe in the two timelines thing. Not, not to this degree. I believe in the two timelines thing of not every single year you should be cashing in every single prospect and pick. Look what I'm talking about with the Leafs. That team has a one. That team has a couple of pieces left. The Warriors have a bunch. Maybe they can get something done this offseason. That does make sense. It'd be tough to imagine how they get off the Andrew Wiggins contract, but feels today anyways, feels today watching Clay Thompson in his post-game media conferences speak on moving to the bench and his body language in general, the role that he has with this team. The fact that so the, most of these athletes don't look at it as, well, I'm just, uh, oh, I don't deserve a little bit because of my past production. I think that they feel as though they have earned the past production. The The tax bill that the Warriors are facing, it's just this is probably, let's put it this way, probably as in at least to me over 50%, the end of or the last time that you are going to see Draymond, Clay, and Steph all together with the Warriors in Toronto. Which feels heavy because the last decade, they've been the team. The Chiefs could be the argument for the team now because like they're starting to come around, but it's like, no, the decade team is still the Warriors. This past decade is the Golden State Warriors decade. And it might be done. I'm really curious to see, though, how they surround Steph Curry with more talent moving forward because, like I said, I like Kaminga. I think he's good. I think Draymond will continue to age well because of the playmaking and just a good is a good low post defensive player. I don't think that he'll be able to get out to the perimeter the same way he's going to start to age, but he's crafty, he's smart, he's competitive. He'll find ways to stay 
to stay solid. The other guys that they have on the bench, the Moody's, I think they're all right. I like the Brzezinski kid. I'm not sure how much better he's going to be. He's good. I don't think he's going to be great. There was a moment there where it looked like the Raptors really missed on him going with Grady Dick. And now I think I'm back to my original position, which was I'd rather have Grady Dick, even with the the added ball handling of Pod. But either way, uh, this is going to be a, a, a bit of a soak it in night for the Raptors. I think this has got to be a bit of a soak it in fa- a night if you're a Raptors fan who's going down to this game. It's a soak it in night for a lot of fans who are younger. Hopefully, anyways. This is like a reality check moment if you're a young NBA fan because you're going, oh, my team is, I guess it's as long as Steph is there, then who cares? Because he's not retiring, but yeah, it's appreciation for what the Warriors have done. And that, of course, that the Raptors beat them in the finals. Makes it feel a little bit better, too. Uh, okay, let's take a quick break. Let's come back. Uh, the Vancouver Canucks are struggling all of a sudden, have not played well since the All-Star break, uh, have won win in their last seven games and it coincides with drama real fun sports drama that has had an incredible news cycle in the last 48 hours i'm going to talk to thomas drance uh, canucks talk and uh senior writer at the athletic about it next sportsnet 590 the fan Obviously, because I have a crippling addiction to my phone, I was scrolling through Twitter during the break and noticed that Jake Paul is fighting this weekend, and it really makes me happy that I didn't know that until now. It also makes me happy seeing Vancouver, the Canucks, turn on themselves again. It's so great. It's one of our favorite... Little reality shows here in Toronto. It's like, oh, what are the Canucks fans doing now? Turning on their media and their own fan base and their team? You hate to see it. Uh, Thomas Drance, Canucks talk on SN 650, uh, senior writer for The Athletic, also a former PR guy, so a perfect guy to talk to today. What's up, brother? How are we doing? Hey, have, thanks for having me, bud. I'm doing well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, before I get into the actual hockey team stuff, because... I think uh, actually I saw they, they're one five and one in their last seven games. Like it's coinciding with all of this drama that is having with uh, Elias Pettersson. But okay, I, I just want to walk through like the last forty eight hours for you as a guy who covers this team, and especially you know you're an intellectual type. Like you're a smart coverage guy. You you know the hot takery and the you know the 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 flair for the dramatic stuff. I feel like you kind of err uh, normally against that, but. Yeah, what what has this been like ever since the reports that he wouldn't sit down at the table, that there was some frustration, the fans lashing out saying he doesn't want to talk about it, you guys having to do your jobs? It feels stressful over there. Yeah, you know, it's always kind of stressful over here. I mean, this is a tinderbox <laughs> hockey market, and it gets louder when the team succeeds. You know, that, yeah. that that's the other thing to note, right? Like, there's... Um, you, you mentioned that I'm a former PR guy. Like, I, I always used to think about it this way. Uh, you know, which is that people say things like, oh, you know, it's really hard to play in these big, intense, hot Canadian markets. And and it's true, but it's also hard to play in sort of quiet markets where everyone kind of knows that your results don't matter, right? Like the difference between a Sunbelt team and, and a team like Vancouver and Toronto is, you know, if you lose in a Sunbelt market, 
um, you can hear a pin drop, right? Like nothing there, there people stop coming out, right? All the coverage is geared toward the NFL and the NBA. Like you kind of disappear and you can't disappear up in Canada. It's like the, the volume stays consistent, static. It's just that it turns on you. Right. And for the most part, the noise around this team has been so wholly positive. It's been a unmitigated, unrelenting snow day of a season for the Vancouver Canucks. I mean, six all-stars, like some of the best results we've ever seen an NHL team have through like 45, 50 games in history in terms of goal differential. And uh, I, I mean, you name it, right? Multiple forwards on pace for a hundred points. Uh, the, the, I mean, Quinn Hughes basically has the Norris trophy wrapped up. I think Rick Tockett, is pretty close in terms of the Jack Adams. Thatcher Demko for a long time looked like the presumptive favorite to win the Vesna, although I think Connor Hellebuck's sewn that up. So, yeah. you know, I mean, this is ridiculous stuff. Um, so, you know, when, I th- and I think it pivoted a little bit, the club sort of hit a bit of a speed bump post all-star break. Right. And, and it's, you know, you bring up the, one five, uh, one five and one stretch here, but you know, uh, sub 500 hockey dating back to uh, the all-star break, the February 6th. Uh, it's been sort of a protracted run of, of mid hockey from this team that really hasn't shown us much mid over the course of the season. And as that's sort of been happening, there's kind of two countervailing wins that have sort of blown to make this, explode as a topic of conversation as as a topic for criticism in the Vancouver market. One is um, the performance of two of their best players, right? Over the course of this win streak or or this mid stretch, excuse me, and this losing streak, Pedersen's form has come back to earth a little bit, right? His five on five game still been fine, but the production's not been there. He hasn't seemed like his, you know, imperious game breaking self. JT Miller has, who's signed for, you know, on the first year of his new seven year deal has been this team's best player has been picking his teeth with opponents has has really kept this team afloat um, seemingly single-handedly over the course of the stretch. And then you had Elliot's report that the Canucks were listening on Elias Pettersson, or at least had, had 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 inquiries from teams uh, about potentially trading him. And, and so I think what those two things in concert did, especially given that the team wasn't playing at their best, was really set off this, like, oppositional debate among fans in this market where it was like, can you even pay Pedersen more than JT Miller, right? Like, can you even do that when he's not their best forward? And in combination, I think gave fans a bit of a fright that Pedersen wasn't going to be committed here amped up that criticism and really made it so that it was the only topic of conversation that fans wanted to talk about. And, you know, uh, you do daily radio, you're, you're on the inbox. Like I am, Um, you know, fans can say stuff like leave them alone. We don't want to talk about it. They'll talk about it after the season. They can say stuff like that, but you can tell, you know, you, you want to bring up nuances of, you know, why Vancouver's special teams are struggling. Great. Like you get two responses in the inbox, uh, a segment, the moment Pedersen's name gets brought up, 50 right like it's it's one of those that fans even the fans that don't think they want to talk about it that's all they want to hear about that's all it was the only parlor conversation that anyone wanted to have around this team and then 
just as it seemed like darkest and weirdest and like things were really going off the rails, you had Frank Saravalli report that there was massive, significant progress being made on an eight-year deal. The, Elliot drops another bomb that the Canucks and the Carolina Hurricanes were discussing a, a potential trade, or at least the Carolina Hurricanes made an offer. I, I, now, I don't know how serious um, I don't know how serious that ever felt like it was from the Hurricanes' perspective, but certainly the Canucks used that opportunity, used the deadline, despite the fact that Pedersen's an RFA, to, to effectively put pressure on him, play some hardball um, about the prospect of, of maybe dealing, dealing him as opposed to letting this play out on his stated and long-preferred timetable. Time it looks like that stimulated some talks, and we're now in this moment where you know, team's got a day off today. They leave to California for a week. And, you know, I've, I've heard everything from, hey, like, you know, pump the brakes. This could take a while. They're still discussing various term structures. There's still lots uh, of road to run here to don't be surprised if there's a press conference today. So uh, this is a really tough one to pin down in part because there's sort of enigma, an enigma at the center of it, which is Pedersen, yep. who hasn't wanted to talk about it and hasn't elaborated on how he feels or why, um, you know, to the point where I think there's been people even, like, close to him, teammates. Like, I think there's been a fair bit of surprise at how this has unfolded, both over the course of this season, uh, but also, you know, just in the last week, as, as it seemed like it's imminent. So... A really strange one overall, and, and one that, given the quality of the player, given how this team has performed, um, and given how Pedersen felt, um, you know, things were dark when he had his rookie year and was an immediate sensation and scored like 10 goals in his first 11 games, right? Like, this guy's mm-hmm. connected, resonated with hockey fans in this market pretty significantly. So to have this play out in sort of the non-committal way that it has this season, I think has been difficult for fans yeah. to, to process and grapple with. And obviously, as a result, it's enthralled them. Listen, I think there's a lot of parallels between the Toronto and Vancouver markets in terms of, yeah, I actually think that, like, you're our sister city in terms of the way that fans react to things. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's just, it's it's very much the same. It's like the Spider-Man meme. It's why I always think it's so funny. When it, and Toronto's actually, like, very much like Vancouver when, there's the inferiority complex at times too. the frustration of, Oh, you don't get enough, you know, Leafs fans love making fun of Vancouver fans. Um, when Vancouver fans gripe about, you know, Ilya Labushkin getting 18 hours of national coverage versus, uh, if Pedersen signs, it'll be like, yep, he signed. It's over and done with. Uh, but uh, everybody in Toronto does the exact same thing with the blue Jays and the Raptors. This like weird thing about not getting respect South of the border. So everyone here should be able to relate. <laughs> what I, what I do think is really interesting about this one though, is, like the timing of the Frank report and listen, I'm not questioning Frank comes on the show. I know he does his due diligence. You know, the guy is excellent at his job, but I couldn't help but go a little conspiracy theory brain with this one and go, okay, so it's drama, drama, drama. And then there's all this stuff for the media and everybody's losing their minds and the team's falling apart. Again, you're a PR guy. Do you think it's a 0% possibility that they kind of put this thing out there being like, no, 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 there's progress so that they could try to just, get some oxygen for this hockey team that really seems to be struggling to keep their heads above water. <laughs> I don't think so, but I don't, I, so I don't think it was as straightforward as that, mm-hmm. but what I do think you've seen here is a, at least in part, I, I do think there's a, you know, veteran executive in James in Jim Rutherford. And I think he was surprised 
uh, initially by some of the intensity of the scrutiny that can come in this market. And, and I think just 12 months ago, right, this club was still reeling from LaFaire, Bruce Boudreau, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of those stories, given how emotional and likable Boudreau was toward the end there, that, you know, was being discussed at like, like I literally had like pastors sending me emails and being like, this is all my <laughs> congregation wants to talk about in the snack room after church. You know, like yeah. it was one of those that sort of transcended your usual sports fan. Like that one passed yeah. the, the mom test or whatever, right? Yeah. And I think that surprised. I think the criticism, the the uh, sort of how, how voluminous it got surprised Canucks management. And what I do think we've sort of seen here is like, um, you know, a, a learning from that and, and perhaps even wielding it to their advantage, right? There's a... It's pretty amazing to be able to go to a player as indispensable to this team's short-term hopes, right? And there's a lot of reasons why this season in particular, you know, could be in some ways Vancouver's best shot. I know this team hasn't been uh, ascending in any normal way, right? And, and, I know, and you look at where they're positioned, right? You've got Pedersen expiring. At the very least, he's going to cost you $5 million more against the cap next season, or, or at least $4.5 million more against the cap next season. You've got Hironic expiring, acquired at great cost uh, about a year ago, and he's expiring. He's going to be a 60-point defenseman with arbitration rights, right? Like, this is an $8 million player now. You know, like, the, the, I, I mean, almost no way around it. So you're going to have these two absolute star level performers for this team who currently cost you about 11, 11 and a half go to 20, right? So that, that right there is going to be tricky. You've also got a team that hit on, you know, eight to 12, like really good depth players, but all on one year deals, right? And they're all expiring. It's going to be hard to get as much value out of the bottom of your lineup as the Canucks have gotten from, you know, your Bluger, Dakota, Joshua, Sam Lafferty, sorry, Toronto fans, uh, Zadorov, Ian Cole, on and on quality guys. Like the, the Canucks have so many valuable expiring contributors. And when you sort of put that together and then add the uncertainty that has surrounded Pedersen until this week, you know, th- this season felt like, man, I, even though this team's just arrived, this might be their best shot. And that kind of flips a little bit in, in a world where, where Pedersen signs. I just think more than anything to go to Pedersen in that situation with a team that's atop the Pacific division and top five in the league and tell your star player, like, Hey, we're going to have to consider trading you uh, unless you sort of negotiate here and knowing, you know, who Pedersen is that, that, you know, he's reflective. He's, he's a little bit of a different cat. Uh, The media scrutiny is, is something that, you know, I think he navigates pretty well, but has, I think, gotten to him behind the scenes. Um, to play hardball in that instance, uh, I, I do think it reflects a, sort of a guy who's been around a long time and is smart and has a, you know, old school hockey executive sense of like P.T. Barnum showmanship, right? I mean, he, he tipped the Elias Lindholm trade on Toronto radio <laughs> four or five or, or, or a month ago, right? Like that's, that's kind of wired into who he is. I do think that you're seeing him learn and figure out how to maybe wield some of the pressure that can come with playing in this market to his advantage. 
where last year it kind of swallowed them whole. You know, I, I thought that this deadline might end up being boring, but now having uh, this player and this story uh, ruminating for the next week, uh, I love it. I, I can't get enough of it. Uh, hey, man, we got to run. We ran out of time, but I always appreciate you making time, especially early in the morning. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Be well. Take care. Uh, Thomas Drantz, Canucks Talk on SN650, senior writer at The Athletic. To me, it's like they had this, he just said it, they had this beautiful season and Vancouver has been toxic for forever. And and I say toxic, but it's like care, you know, but their fans, they, when you start to lose that frequently and you have bad season after bad season, like the Canucks had had recently. Yeah. The fans start to get a little bit ornery and media gets ornery. Everybody's not having a great time. And then they, they have the season where everyone's just, you know, gangbusters and they're the story of the year and. Look at them go. Everything's, he said it. Look at all the different award winners they look like they're going to have, the all-stars that they had. And they went right into full positive mode. And then all of a sudden it starts to shift. And I get the fan angst and the media angst going, oh, we don't want to go back here. This has been so much more fun. This has been so much more enjoyable with the team playing well. And that uh, the star player all of a sudden being in a contract dispute and the team going in the tank right as you enter the trade deadline when national focus starts to shift is a, is a bit of a bummer for them. But yeah, I, I guess to this, uh, congrats Vancouver for making the impossible happen. Toronto cares about what's going on with your hockey team. Um, I'll be back on Monday, trade deadline week, subscribe and review. See you then.